Welcome to another edition of Market Impact Insights, your podcast source for business leadership perspectives to help your business grow. Hear from experts in marketing, sales, business strategy, and more with practical advice for business success. Make sure you won't miss the latest episodes by visiting marketimpactnow.com. Now, here's your host, Dan Albaum. Welcome back, everyone, to another outstanding episode of Market Impact Insights. And the episode today is going to be another C-suite spotlight. We're going to focus on chief executive officer. We've talked to some CEOs before. Today, we're going to focus a bit with a lens around this idea of diversity, equity, inclusion from a couple of different perspectives looking at some of the latest trends in terms of women in leadership roles. A McKinsey survey uh, before the pandemic showed some progress there. Women's representation in senior management growing from 23 to 28% between 2015 and 2020, and representation in the C-suite increasing from 17 to 21%, certainly a long way to go. Uh, Some progress, but a long way to go there. And in just looking globally, at the percentage of women in senior management positions. Interesting study uh, recently looking at that, ranging from 27% to 38% across the various regions. North America at 29%, so more on the the shorter end of that scale. So uh, I am so excited today to have a very successful chief executive officer. Delana Lim is going to join us And we're going to explore this gender gap, her own journey, and becoming a leader of a successful technology organization. And the other aspect of this is when you think about leaders of technology companies, you might think that having a formal technical background in education might be critical, but you'll be surprised that a lot of very successful leaders don't necessarily have that. And we're going to explore uh, her own experience and journey around that with Delana today. Delana is a passionate leader who's all about developing and bringing disruptive technologies and services to market and helping software as a service organizations scale to their next level of success. She's very committed to recruiting and building high performance teams in a positive and supportive culture while delivering the highest quality products and solutions. And She knows how to solve big customer problems, and we're going to talk a little bit about that too. Delana's career spans more than 20 years in enterprise software and technology. She's led product strategy, planning and management, the development at large companies, as well as emerging startups. Delana currently serves as CEO of Versium, a market-leading data analytics company, and she's committed to guiding the organization through its next stage of growth. Before serving as CEO, She was the company's chief operating officer, where she focused on deploying the company's advanced AI and predictive data targeting solutions to the marketing industry. Before joining Versium, uh, Delano was a founding member and vice president for product and engineering at TalentWise. Delano helped scale TalentWise to become an award-winning leader within its industry and was instrumental in successfully exiting that business to Sterling Talent Solutions, the world's leading background and identity services provider. At Sterling, she served as chief product officer where she oversaw Sterling's global portfolio of products and services. So Delana, 
incredible leadership background. I can't wait to have the conversation on this journey. Delana, welcome to Market Impact Insights. Great. Thank you, Dan. It's great to be here and I'm looking forward to our discussion. So I, I want to go back and you go back to the beginning of your career journey. And I'm really curious, what inspired you to pursue this career path? Really, you, you think of yourself as a technologist. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious, what was that journey like, given that you really don't have a highly technical or a developer mm-hmm. background? Mm-hmm. It's, it's interesting, Dan, because uh, I've been asked that question a lot. Um, mainly from women who believe that the lack of a formal technical background is career limiting. And so I walk them through typically my background. You know, I started in product marketing uh, at a software company. Um, The reason I did it was because I actually had a mentor early on who pulled me into that industry. In my mind, I could have, you know, been working on anything easily as you know, working on Tide or, you know, some other brand as, as it was working on technology uh, product. That said, once I started working, I realized how much I loved working with the teams and developers specifically, the software engineers. I got them, right? I enjoyed working with them and I could translate what they needed to the business. And I could also translate what the business needs to the developers, um, and that early trust that was built between me and my different teams is really the basis for a lot of my career success. Um, I always found teams I enjoyed working with, uh, products uh, that I felt really needed to see a place in the market. And the development teams helped me bridge any technology gap. Right. As long as you're willing to listen and learn, um, as long as you understand and really, really love working in technology, it's very easy to move your way up without a formal background. It takes work. It really does. And it takes a passion for it. But once you have that, um, there really shouldn't be any reason why you are not able to obtain whatever type of career advancement you want in technology. Um, You know, you just have to bridge the gap and you can do it through relationships. You can do it through your own learning. uh, But it's, it's a career choice for folks. Um, You know, a lot of the strongest technologists that I've worked with actually don't come from formal technology backgrounds and their passion was the thing that made up for it. And you can see it in what they produce and what they what they work on. Yeah, what you're saying really resonates with me, Delana, and I appreciate mm-hmm. and respect so much because myself having worked on the marketing side, but having mm-hmm. uh, interface a lot with engineering and technical teams, and I know that's not an easy thing, right? Because they're mm-hmm. you know in forming those stronger relationships, sometimes there's this credibility issue, right? And there is a different. Mm-hmm mindset the way engineers think right as opposed to maybe the 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 marketing side of things and and it, and you're right it takes time and uh but over but over time and if you you stick with it then there there is a very rewarding outcome on that but i can really appreciate yeah. uh, how you were able to navigate that mm-hmm. and it takes trust one of the things i know uh engineers like a lot of uh, highly technical people um pick up on um folks trying too hard or inauthentic language. And so once yeah. that trust is built and it's mutual, uh, that you trust that they will always give you the correct answer 
especially for a deeply technical problem that you need their expertise in, um, you know, the, the companies can go really far. Um, and so for me, understanding the team dynamics, working with the right teams and creating that level of trust has been, has been cornerstone for career building. I think also just in terms of the communication, just mm-hmm. being very clear in language, right. And, and kind of getting to, to the bottom line. I found mm-hmm. that in my experience of just remove the fluff, all right, the marketing fluff language, and just let, let's be really clear and, and maybe more plain and direct in our communication. And sometimes that was really important too. Yeah. I, I completely agree. Because engineers do not respond to, you know, a lot of business vernacular, right? Because it changes every 10 years. Uh, what they really want to know are what are the things that they will build that will get in the most hands and solve the most problems? And that's it. Uh, and so if you can communicate that where very clearly, uh, then, you know, it becomes a very, really great, uh, relationship, but I, I understand, uh, you know, we, uh, are kind of, you know, I grew up around in my career in tech around, you know, very strong Microsoft culture, uh, that puts a high emphasis on technical background. And so it's something that I've managed through. Um, in my career. And so it's really interesting just to uh, see um, the difference when it comes to how people are entering technology now versus how they did 20 years ago, right? It's great to see because that adds to the diversity of background and the diversity of uh, thought that goes into making really great products. So, Curious, you, you've obviously reached this uh, pinnacle in terms of a CEO role, but was reaching the C-suite something that you always had as your long-term goal? And as you navigated through and started building these strong relationships, even though you didn't have a technical background, but you built the strong relationships with uh, the folks that did have that, what kind of a difference and what kind of benefit do you think that gave you as you've now moved into this very senior uh, leadership role? You know, it, it's interesting. Um, as you approach thinking about the C-suite, everybody that is in there has one area of deep expertise, whether it be finance, marketing, um, product, engineering, but they are experts at a very, very specific thing. And then as they broaden their role within the organization, they have to be very competent and knowledgeable about every other aspect of the business. Uh, What I found is in organizations that had a strong propensity towards product is I brought the skill set that was most important to them, right? You have a lot of organizations, you know, that are backed by, for instance, PE, and they look for private equity, and they look for Mm -hmm. uh, C-levels that have a lot of finance background, Right. And that's fine. Um, But really knowing where you fit in with an organization and the relative importance of your role, it's that's that's key to understanding whether you've, you know, you belong in a suite C-suite in certain areas. Right. It's it's what the what the organization needs combined with what what you bring to the table. Uh, The technical background has helped. And and one of the reasons it's helped is because, you know, in every uh, company I've worked at, it's been extremely important. For people to understand the product. And, you know, early on in my career, no one understood it better than, than me. 
And it was a great uh, Mm -hmm. way for me to meet people within the organization, grow organizations, uh, meet a lot of customers, um, grow relationships. And so for me, that became critical to how I thought about a company. Um, And still, when I interview product people or talk about product people, uh, you know, my gauge of how successful a product person's going to be with me is really how deeply do you understand your own product? Yeah. Yeah. I think there's a lot of examples of companies that sometimes can almost lose their way Mm -hmm. where that deep domain knowledge, right. And the, and the essence of truly what makes their product great and, and adds the most value where you, if you lose that sense, you lose alignment, then all sorts of bad things can happen in organizations. I agree. And, and we go back, you know, to the definition of technical, you know, someone who, you know, came from a a company that was, you know, I would consider less technical, um, essentially believe that the definition of technical was purely understanding your product and nothing to do with your ability to code or develop or engineer Mm -hmm. from scratch. Mm -hmm. It was really, what is the depth of knowledge that you have within this specific field? Right. And I thought that was a really interesting way to look at it, because a lot of people who have that depth of knowledge when it comes to a product or a service or an industry discount that because they can't code it. But they know more than anyone how something should be built. Uh, I thought it was a great perspective that I hadn't thought through before. And I, you know, bring that to folks when, when I, when they're trying to understand, uh, how to make their way in an inside a very engineering driven industry without an engineering background. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that is really important. And I'd love to explore with you, you know, I, I talked at the opening of this podcast, some of the Uh, trends in terms of women in leadership roles. We're seeing more representation on boards. We're seeing more Mm -hmm. representation in the C-suite. But your reflection on your own journey uh, as a woman in technology and your path and the kind of example uh, that it sets for others, the positive example, does it feel differently today when you look at that versus when you started out? Like, How does that dynamic change? What's your, your point of view on that? Mm-hmm. Oh, it feels very different now in a great way, in a great way. Um, you know, just even looking at some of the benefits, um, a, a great example is maternity and paternity benefits are very different now than they were 20 years ago. Yep. When it comes to a, bil- a woman's ability to leave the workforce, to have a family and come back into the workforce. That has completely shifted in a great and positive way. I think, you know, the requirement that a lot of publicly traded companies now have uh, at different levels, whether it's state requirements or NASDAQ requirements to have a woman on their board, that actually is um, pushing forward the discussion in a way where it is no longer an option and it's no longer a nice to have. It is a must-have that you include uh, uh, these different initiatives and uh, a div- and create a diverse board, and for in order for you to be traded, in order for you to operate in certain places. I mean, that's very different than it was before. Um, the other thing is when you take a look at who's actually going to college now. It's all it's half women or yep. more. 
in a lot of cases, which means that that is, you know, that is our brain trust over the next 10, 20 years. And we need to create an environment where those people that we've invested a tremendous amount in educating can be as successful as possible and add as much to, um, you know, to our economy as possible. And I think people understand that now better than ever. Um, I think COVID has exacerbated a lot of issues that had existed before and kind of brought them to the forefront, uh, you know, with the last two years and just the remarkable shift in how everyone thought about what work was over a very short period of time. I think when we come out of it, it's going to be really interesting to see uh, how the role of women has really kind of settled in and how a lot of men who are looking for either, you know, more balance or more time with their family now approach what they expect from work. And once that happens, it's going to be uh, no longer a mother or father or family thing. It is going to be this is how we need to encourage workers to, you know, maintain balance within their lives. Yeah, I think the pandemic has definitely been a time of self-reflection mm-hmm. for everyone, hopefully, and, and a new way of uh, viewing the idea of traditional models of work time versus mm-hmm. personal time versus home time. It's all, it's just, it's just all just been stirred up by the last two years of changing mm-hmm. work patterns and remoteness. And, uh, but there, there can be some real positives, hopefully, that come out of that. Yeah. Well, my my hope is when you ask me what's optimistic, you know, what I'm optimistic yes. about is there there I've already seen it, um, and it won't, and I believe it will be lasting in terms of what the shift is and the acknowledgement that people do have a life outside of work. And that needs to be respected and encouraged because you want to create, you know, a great environment, not just for workers, but for families. Uh, so it, it's a it's a good perspective. You know, before what's really interesting is, you know, over the last year and a half, um, I have seen more of my uh, employees, families than I've ever seen before. And so that just sticks with you. We all have. We know, uh, you know, all our colleagues. We know who the, what their animals, their dogs and cats. Yes. Right. We know them <laughs> by name. It's we have a level of understanding and you know intimacy associated with how people work uh, that we didn't have before. When you know you just may met you may have met them over coffee. So you know those things will last. Because I think right now people are expecting more from a workplace. Yeah, it's the authenticity of the relationships has really just been enhanced just because the nature of the interactions have been at a more personal level, you know, in terms Mm -hmm. of seeing people in their home offices and the reality of what real life is all about, right? We all, you know, if you have kids, you have animals, Mm -hmm. you have responsibilities and just stuff happens, you know, and Mm -hmm. uh, we're becoming more real with each other, I think, through those Zoom calls and seeing that. Yeah, definitely. And I think for a long time, women, um, not as much now, but for a long time, women kept that part of their lives private because they didn't want it to impact their career, right? Their struggles with childcare or balance, you know, were things that they kept privately. And now when everybody's experiencing it, the conversation is, you know, wide open 
in terms of the struggles folks are having. And so I, I thought it was, you know, really interesting to see the shift, the openness in the conversation that people are having now. I mean, a lot of the issues around the balance of work from home and, you know, time with family, they all existed before, but they were things that women in a lot of ways internalized and tried to solve on their own. And now that conversation has shifted into more of a societal conversation. And when that happens, change happens. That is so true. And as you have moved into your first CEO role at Versium, you know, anyone stepping into a new role, but a CEO role uh, of a fast growth company uh, with a lot of challenges, what were some of the biggest personal challenges that you have faced in trying to build, I'll call it that winning culture or the culture that you envision was essential for the company? Anything unexpected that you've encountered along the way? There have been many unexpected things. And and one of them is that uh, the definition of culture is fluid. Values stay in terms of what a val- what what is of value to the company, right? Whether it's customer centricity, whether it's accountability, um, you know, but the culture around it had completely shifted in the sense of what we used to think the definition of culture was, right? You know, 10 years ago, the definition of culture was free meals, ping pong tables, you know, kind of, you know, happy hours. And, you know, how do you create kind of an environment where uh, people like to come to work or people are excited about, uh, you know, working with their colleagues? Um once we were all forced home, it really made everyone rethink, well, you know, the culture that we had is shifted, but the values remain the same. How do you create um, value? Um, how do your employees and customers feel like you're paying attention to them when all else around seems to just be kind of, you know, in flux? Uh, so, it's been really interesting, not just for me, I think for a lot of folks uh, that have been in similar situations as to how do you adjust expectations? How do you adjust planning? How do you um, create an environment where there is a sense of culture when everybody is struggling to maintain normalcy in their own world? And uh, so I think it's, you know, I think we'll be talking about this for years, Dan, exactly. Oh, yeah. You know, what the seismic shift that's happened. And uh, when it's come to how people work, what people think about work, new expectations around work and the role of work in, in life. Right. So uh, but yeah, no, for, for me, it's really can we maintain um, it was you know, 2020 was a struggle for all businesses. Um, for a small startup, uh, it, you know, you can imagine the, how um, kind of suddenly the shifts ex- and the shifts in market suddenly impacted smaller organizations. Um, so it was maintaining, um, you know, really for the company, a very strong sense of this is where we're headed. This is our direction. We will all get through this. 
um, and then just reiterating that regularly. Um, so it, you know, it was interesting. It was really interesting when it comes to, you know, how, how we dealt with it versus how other companies dealt with it. Um, you know, what's interesting, it seems like the companies that are having the biggest issues, right, these big companies, were the ones that strongly define culture as a work from home, uh, work from work thing. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, because their employees just don't know what the future has in store. Yeah. Because if your culture is tied to place, then, and that place and your ability to get to that place suddenly changes, right? You need to make a seismic shift in order for your employees to feel comfortable. So it's going to be, it's, it's going to be a, an interesting journey for everyone, I think, in, in the technology space. Yeah, it's definitely a, a fasten your seatbelts moment and, and future mm-hmm. that we have. And, you know, you have all of that deep expertise in developing product and in marketing. And even with all of the market disruption uh, that we're having to deal with, the fact remains that there is just a lot of innovation when it comes to technology. Mm-hmm. There, there are trends that really are going to impact the strategic direction, especially for SaaS companies. What do you see as some of those most critical trends that are going to reshape what the future looks like? No, that's really interesting. Um, you know, one of the biggest shifts when when it comes to marketing, and, and I know that from your perspective, uh, you know, 2020, 2021 was a big shift in how marketers approach how to market to buyers, right? Across both consumer and, you know, B2C and B2B. Um, because all the methods of marketing that we've typically used suddenly were put on hold. There are no events, right? You couldn't send, you know, a package to come somebody's office and expect yep. them to get it uh, for direct mail. Um, even showing ads, right? Where do you show them? In their, pl- their place of work, Um you know, because the, the line's completely blurred. Um, and they were blurring before, but the last two years really forced this whole idea of, you know, kind of a 360 view of what a person is. Their work life, their home life, everything is just combining. And uh, so I know for marketing, it's going to continue to be what that shift looks like when people are, you know, working from anywhere now, right? Mm-hmm. They're working from Airbnbs, yep. for instance, right? How do you continue to market to them and effectively actually, um, you know, provide meaningful content to them? Uh, another big shift that's happening in marketing is essentially uh, as a result of all the privacy initiatives that are happening across various states and really the shifts in how Google and other large uh, platforms are starting to manage and treat, um, you know, their users. You know, Google recently announced that it was shifting away from cookies onto its own platform called Flock, uh, which is, was more of a federated system to really kind of essentially to improve privacy around around their service, um, then that didn't work. So now they're launching something else, right? There's a lot in flux when it comes to 
how marketers are going to be able to work in the future, but it's going to be critical that everyone in marketing has a privacy-forward approach and works with organizations that have a privacy-forward approach uh, just to make sure that you know, they're continuing to do the right things for the consumers. So, you know, it's really interesting, the dynamic shifts, right? The work from home, work from anywhere, shifting the way marketers think. Um, A lot of uh, dollars were diverted out of events into other things for a short period, uh, really creating new marketing methods uh, that are really interesting. And then on top of that, the whole shift in privacy, right? How do we Mm -hmm. deal with uh, kind of... um, these new uh, methods of marketing. And, you know, what's funny is kind of what's, what's old again is new again. You know, it used to be that, you know, how you could get a hold of someone when it came to marketing um, was, you know, almost a little bit like a blunt instrument. And then all of a sudden the cookies came around and you were able to yeah, micro-target yeah. and there all sorts of things about people. And now that's winding back. And I think marketers now are trying to figure out, you know, how do I maintain the right level of targeting while also maintaining a privacy-forward approach to marketing. Yeah, and I also think that mm-hmm. going back to more the blunt instrument type of scenario puts a premium on really smart content development. You know, we, we talk about the importance of relevance, and especially yeah. if you're just coming at someone, you know, directly with the message of, is that going to resonate? You need to really think very carefully about um, how you message. Uh, if you want the response, right, which is what it should be all about, which is measurable exactly. response. Exactly. Content is going to be critical. Focus on first-party data is going to be critical. More than ever, people have to know their customers, right, and uh, and get consent to market to those customers. So, um, you know, we'll continue to see these shifts. You know, there's a lot of conversations uh, within the MarTech community about all the specific shifts in marketing. Um, but, you know, with, with all these change comes a tremendous amount of opportunity, right? Just because it is, is a shift in, in many ways, the right direction. And I think some companies are better equipped to, to take that change on than others. Yeah, no doubt. And you've worked with so many brilliant people throughout your career. I'm curious what the single best piece of advice is you have received that's that's really uh that's a hard question dan because i feel like uh (laughs) i get advice a lot at different points in my career I, i seek advice from you know both mentors and and actually people who work for me um one of the best pieces of advice that i got and and i actually think this applies to not just my career but just um, also personal choices. Um, I was trying to determine, you know, what route I wanted to take at a certain point in my career, right? At different opportunities in front of me. Um, what was, you know, what was my next move to your point? You know, I hadn't, uh, specifically been focused on, um, getting to a C-suite, but I knew it as, at a certain point in time, I had enough experience and knowledge under my belt where I could take such a role on. And so, uh, you know, like every kind of, you know, project oriented person, I started making lists and doing research and trying to figure out, you know, what are the pros and cons about all these different paths? And finally, 
someone who was a you know friend, mentor, colleague, uh, just said, just make two lists. Make a list of things that energize you and the things that tire you out. Don't think about any of the opportunities in front of you, but just write the list mm-hmm. of right now, what gives you energy? What makes you excited? And what are the things that just are exhausting to you? And it was just such a different way for me to approach it, right? Uh, so I did that. And then suddenly, um, choices became very clear. And it was yeah. really interesting. Uh, but I continued to do that. And, and like I said, it's, it's great also for personal decisions and things like that. Um, but it's just a simple exercise, right? What are the things that really energize you um, just in general, right? And for me, it was really easy to come up with the list of these are the things that I just look forward to. And then the list that tire me out, I, it was equally easy to come up with the list. And and so with that, you know, I could look at every opportunity and understand the balance of, you know, this opportunity has a lot of on the tire me out list and not enough on the energize me list. It's not going to work. So that was a great piece of advice. It it reoriented me uh, around decision making. And I also found that, uh, I was just able to make decisions much quicker as a result of it. Well, one of the things I know you're energized by, Delana, is problem solving. And I've heard you talk about and advocate the importance of ensuring that there are diverse perspectives. You know, so as organizations approach solving a problem, bring in that broadest diverse perspective. Could you share a little bit more about that? Um, you know, it's it's interesting because when you look at, um, as a CEO, right, you obviously have customers. Our customers are diverse. And so um, we need a level of diversity when it comes to making decisions about what our customers need. Um, you know, that one of the things that uh, is different now versus, you know, when I started my career Um, I think that the definition of diversity has changed, right? I think uh, when I started, you know, just to get a woman a seat at the table uh, was, you know, that was everyone would give themselves accolades for that, right? Um, But now I think everyone understands that diversity um, and inclusion means a lot more than just one, one aspect of a person. It means you know, a diversity of experiences. It means a diversity of backgrounds, a diversity Mm -hmm. of education. And I have to say a diversity of ages, right? You know, when you look a lot at a lot of um, executives, uh, you know, they're all around, give or take 10 years, the same age, right? And so a lot of what we do when we're trying to, you know, market and sell and distribute our products and solve problems, it's like the people making decisions about how to solve the problems need to represent the people who are buying the products. And um, I think folks are realizing this now simply because they realize they're coming up with be- out with better outcomes, 
right? It is, it is not just, mm-hmm. just to yeah. say it and, you know, kind of give yourself a pat on the back. You know, the outcomes are better. The perspectives are better. You're able to identify issues quicker because you actually have someone from a different experience or background helping you make those decisions. Um, it is also something when you think about diversity inclusion that you have to work for. And it isn't easy, right? It, it, it can't be um, a secondary thought. It always has to be something that you think about when you're making a decision, Um just because it's, it's, you know, like all things, right. Uh, you know, great example is the, you know, like the NASDAQ requiring women, um, on the board before anybody is publicly traded. You, those are the types of things that have to happen in order for change to happen. Um, but you know, from my perspective, a diversity of opinions means all sorts of things. And so I will ask in my organization, you know, uh, to make sure all sorts of people have looked at something just to mm-hmm. make sure, you know, that we understand any issues before it hits a customer. And in order to do that, you do need diversity of backgrounds and diversity of understandings, uh, you know, even diversity of opinion about you know, different areas. So it, it's interesting. And, this, and I think that people uh, expect it more and, and actually respect it more when it comes to, well, what does so-and-so think about this? I think that now is becoming a more common part of a conversation rather than, you know, top-down decision-making. Yeah. And I think the other thing that comes with this commitment to diversity in problem-solving is the willingness that there's going to be some internal conflict, right? Because when you broaden that that diversity of perspective and opinions, uh, that means there are going to be disagreements, right? And so mm-hmm. there has to be this um, willingness to to see the the positive aspect of a healthy healthy conflict, right? But but getting to the right outcome, but but sometimes that can be a little daunting, can it? You know, to just know that well, there's probably we're going to be stirring up uh, some disagreement here. Uh, exactly. And and that's the one thing is like, you know, going back to values, right? And culture. Uh, I think disagreement um, and diversity of opinion is really important. Uh, you know, as long as there are clear guardrails around it, I think um, everything always ends up better when people feel free to speak their their mind on their, their, their proposed solution, right? Um, not everybody's idea will be incorporated, but everybody will be heard. And I think that's really important. So Delana, when you look to the future, what makes you optimistic? Uh, I think what one thing that makes me optimistic is the conversations that people are having now around work, the role of work uh, in someone's life, uh, you know, the focus and diversity, the conversations are very different than the conversations that happened early in my career, right? Um, the shifts that have happened over time are real. And, you know, once the shifts become normal, then they become a launching off point, um, you know, for future growth. So, you know, that's one area where I'm very optimistic that, uh, as we continue this journey and, you know, I'm speaking specifically about kind of technology, the work, the work mm-hmm. we do, uh, yeah. that it'll continue to make um, 
it'll continue to pursue um, kind of just more and more programs to ensure that it's doing what it needs to do for uh, society. Um, I think the role of a corporation has also shifted within the last 20 years, what it means. Um, It used to be very much focused on corporation serves shareholders, right? That was what you learned in business school. And now, you know, people have said, wait, wait, wait a second. That's not fully true. Corporation doesn't just serve shareholders, serves customers. It serves employees, you know. It services the economy, um, but it also makes an impact on the climate, right? I think people are looking more holistically about the role of what a company is. And that is an interesting shift because there is definitely the need to focus on shareholders. But I also think shareholders expect companies to have other programs in place to build goodwill. And, you know, even just some of the strides companies like Amazon, you know, in our backyard has made around minimum wage or, you know, climate reduction, right? If you think about 20, 30 years ago, a company with that market control like Amazon, right? What, what would they have done versus what Amazon is doing now? Uh, it's a really interesting shift. I think we're going to continue to see that. I think employees and customers expect it. Um, and I also think that, you know, as a result of it, we're going to see a lot of positive change uh, when it comes to a corporation's role uh, within society and, and really understanding the role they play, that it's beyond just, you know, shareholder interests, but they other they have other responsibilities too. And I think, you know, there are a lot of, technology leaders, companies that lead different technology companies who've, you know, taken this role seriously. You know, there are always hits and misses, you know, everyone tries, you know, the social yeah. media, everyone, everyone can comment and has a voice on what they <laughs> like and don't like. But I think that it's going to, I think we're going to continue to see that shift. And for me, it's a real positive thing because, uh, you know, once, once it helps the grassroots approach when it comes to, you know, real change, right? It has to, it can't just start from top down. It has to start from bottom up. And once organizations realize that this is very much a bottom up thing, they can continue with it. So it's really great to see. Uh, That does make me optimistic because it broadens the role of what a company should do. It, you know, essentially gives me new perspective as a CEO as to, you know, who my stakeholders are beyond just shareholders. Uh, so I think that will continue and that makes me optimistic. Yeah, definitely. It feels like the bar has been raised around social responsibility, right? And, mm-hmm. and actually going beyond talk and kind of walking the talk. And so it seems like the expectation of, well, it's great to, to say the right words, but there seems to be this um, skepticism of, hey, we want to see it in terms of people mm-hmm. really uh, recognizing a company is is really putting the commitment in around being socially mm-hmm. responsible. It just feels like the standard has just, and the bar has been raised 
around that. No, I agree. I completely agree. Uh, it's no longer just, hey, I've you know tweeted out my support of an issue, but now it is. This is the programs and plans and targets that we have. I know for these businesses, you know, especially publicly traded companies, they make their revenue targets. Um, they make their uh, you know sales quota goals right. They make their production targets as they start putting targets out there around social responsibility, you know, you know, they can make it because they make other targets that are very hard. It's just a question of putting it out there and holding someone accountable. Um, that's a shift, right? That's a real shift, uh, that, that we've seen. Mm-hmm. So as we start wrapping up our conversation, Delana, do you have any other final advice for leaders that are seeking long-term growth or business success? You know, that's a, that's a really interesting question. And one, one piece of advice uh, that I like to give, and, and, it's, and it's for emerging leaders, typically people kind of early, mid-career, uh, around career choice. You know, we have a great set of uh, companies in the area to work for. We really do. There are lots of opportunities for technology workers uh, now, especially. And what I always encourage people to do if they have the opportunity is to work in a startup. Uh, And part of the reason is, you know, in a lot of ways, working in a startup is a career accelerator. You become exposed to things you would not necessarily be exposed to in large organizations you have a span of re- responsibility that is much larger than you would have, you know, in kind of a megacorp. Um, and you have a seat at the table for change and growth. You actually see decisions being made. You see the impact of those decisions right away. Right. It's, it is, it shows you what it's like to run a business up close and personal. Um, and so when, you know, People ask me who want to eventually be in the C-suite role, what is the best way to get there? I always encourage you have to do your time in a startup. Yeah, It's like nothing else, right? The level of energy, what you're required to learn, uh, problems that you need to solve, right? The level of growth, like being in a company that grow- that's growing rapidly, right? It's... And you're in large companies, you know, 5%, 10% growth may be fine. But when you're a startup, you know, that's your death knell. So you definitely have to uh, kind of roll up your sleeves more. But, you know, you have a front row seat to a lot of exciting things. Um, and then, you know, you can choose to go work for a large company afterwards. But uh, it really gives you perspective on really what your role is, the nuts and bolts of what you're trying to do and trying to accomplish. Yeah, and I think that even extends as hiring managers into different roles and larger organizations, candidates that come in and show that they've had the startup experience. My own experience has been uh, some great hires because of what you talked about, because they were they had to kind of take the initiative, they had to take on more. They just had to seem to have a broader perspective mm-hmm. and con- confidence that they were bringing in, even if their role was maybe more narrowly defined, you know, as they moved into a mm-hmm. larger organization, there was still a value that they had had that. So no, I think they, what you're saying is so true. They can, uh, they're flexible because they're used to change, 
right? Uh, they're able to taste, take on hard tasks. And that's, that's one of the things that, uh, uh, you know, when you think about what are, as you know, what do you do when you're trying to make your career? Uh, you know, one of the things, you know, try to solve hard problems. And the hardest problems are in startups. And they are willing to give them to people who are interested in solving them versus, you know, a very large organization yep. or some high up VP. Well, that's their job or something. Um, or that problem gets so removed from you that you're not even really sure what you're doing to move the stock price at a certain <laughs> time because you're one of like 150,000 people. Right. Uh, so, um, you know, there is a value there. Uh, but there's also a trade-off. The people who work in startups, you know, have to know that, that this is what it's like. And I always, you know, when I interview folks, I always give them kind of the whole, this is the growth side, and this is a side that sometimes makes people uncomfortable, right? Uh, you know, we don't have an entire backup system to tell you, you know, how to do your job. Right. When we're asking you to solve a problem, it's most likely because all the easy problems have already been solved. And this is a hard one. <laughs> and yeah. we need to uh, to think about this differently. Um, and uh, but it's 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 really interesting. It, I love watching people's career and just their sense of self grow working in a startup. Because I think, you know, startups, you know, accept a lot of, uh, you know, so a little bit kind of like the island of misfit toys, right? That yeah, yeah. There are a bunch of different types of folks there, but collectively, when things are moving in the right direction, they can do what no large company can do and move at a pace that's unreal. And so that's why, you know, for me, that's, I've made my career, uh, you know, working at various startups or small companies and it's a comfort zone this way. I always, uh, uh, suggest to people if they're interested in really understanding what it's like to be in the C-suite or understanding how to build leadership, time in a startup is, is key. Well, Delana, thanks again for coming on, sharing your own personal journey and being inspiring and motivating to all of us in terms of what's possible mm -hmm. and also everything we should be optimistic in terms of where things are headed. So really appreciate your perspective. Great. Well, thank you, Dan. Thanks for giving me the opportunity to chat with you. I enjoyed the interview. And a reminder to all of you to please continue to go out and give us the gift of feedback. If uh, you like this podcast, please rate and review. You can do that on all the podcast platforms, including Apple Podcast. And a reminder, as always, make sure to visit marketimpactnow.com for the latest in business leadership perspectives. So long until next time.